Well, we're in Exodus chapter 5 today. I hope that uh, uh, you have one open in front of you that you can, you can uh, uh, read along with. We're in Exodus chapter 5, and for those who are uh, no doubt visitors, uh, are coming along maybe for the baptisms or, or uh, uh, your first time in church for a long time, we're glad that you're here. But we've been uh, going line by line and sort of chapter by chapter through the story that God gives to us in the Old Testament, which is absolutely, I, I keep on driving this home uh, uh, to, uh, because it's, it's, it's so unpopular in the academia today, it is real, true history. These things are written down by God through Moses. They happened exactly as Moses wrote them as happening. It was real, true history. But just because it's history doesn't mean it's mere history. It doesn't mean there's not lessons to pull out. It doesn't mean there's not theological truths that are woven throughout it that we're supposed to be able to go back by God's Spirit with the eye of faith and see the gospel being foreshadowed in these pages and see lessons for our life today that God was writing down even in these ancient times. We're told in the letter of uh, uh, 1 Corinthians by Paul that these things were written down. They, They happened to the saints of old in the Old Testament, but they were written down for you, for our instruction, so that we might learn. So that's our, that's our aim. We've been going through and we've seen that the, the patriarchs of Israel went down into Egypt to be saved from the, from the, uh, the famine. And from there, they, they grew and they multiplied. They just kept on having babies. And, and the Egyptians got a little bit threatened by their swelling size. And so they enslaved them. They took away all of their rights and they, they, uh, they uh, uh, made them work long, hard hours. And this went on for hundreds of years until the birth of Moses who was miraculously and by, by the love of, the, of his mother and father who protected him against the, the uh, commands of the Pharaoh who wanted every young Jewish boy killed, he was protected and God kept him alive and he was actually raised by God's providence in the house of Pharaoh himself. Just, just take that, Pharaoh. That's, that's what God thinks of your plans. You're going to pay for this guy's uh, 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 alimony, whatever it is. So he's Pharaoh. He's, pay, he's, he's functionally the grandfather of, the, of, this, uh, of this young man who is going to grow up and become, in God's power, the rescuer of the Israelites from Egypt. But, but it doesn't happen quite so smoothly. There's, there's another 40 years after, after Moses clocks 40, he goes down and he looks at the Israelites and thinks, this is, a, this is a, a heck of a show. These guys need rescuing. He tries his own hand at, at killing one guy and then, and then trying to uh, uh, play judge between two, two fighters in another scene and they, they don't want him and, and, and Pharaoh wants him dead because of his murder of an Egyptian. So the, the whole show goes down. He runs into the wilderness, abandons both the Egyptians and the Jews, marries a, a woman named Zipporah who is a Midianite and there he's been living for 40 years. Before, Exodus 3 tells us that God met him in the burning bush and revealed for the first time ever the name of God, his own name being Yahweh. And he promised to him that you're going to be the one that I use with your brother Aaron to go and rescue the people of Israel from their long, hard slavery. And it was last week that we finally saw at the beginning of chapter 5, Moses and Aaron go into the presence of Pharaoh and demand what they wanted. They demand the rescue and the, and the release of the Israelites and Pharaoh, in no uncertain terms, denies their request. He says, instead of listening to your request, because I don't know this, this Yahweh God, he's, I, I reject him, I deny his authority, and in fact, what I will do is I will turn up the slavery even more. And so they will have to keep on building their bricks and they're going to have to keep on building our cities, except I'm going to leave out the straw. I'm going to make them 
build the bricks with straw that they find, which is of a lower quality. It was technically an impossible task, and here they were, suffering even worse under the increased painful edicts of Pharaoh. Now, now there's a, a little technicality that we need to remember. There was Egyptian slave masters... And then there were Jewish foremen who were over and above the other Jewish slaves. So technically in the status of slaves themselves, but entrusted with the the ordering, ordering around of the slaves. Of course, this just made lighter work for the Egyptians. And it's those foremen sort of who had a bit of a privileged seat in as far as slavery goes. You know, it's like being a well paid apprentice. Yeah. And you get like five bucks an hour, which is just, wham, oh, that's great. They're slaves, but they're the the boss slaves, so good on them. And and so they go into Pharaoh, assuming there's been a a miscommunication, and they ask for his grace and says, you know, you're not given a straw? Uh, I don't know, that's obviously an email got missed, Pharaoh. That doesn't make sense. Now when we don't make enough bricks, we're getting beaten. Obviously, we can iron this whole thing out. Look at, uh, and, and then his response, of course, was get out, get back to work. You're just lazy. Well, verse 18 is where we're picking up our reading today in Exodus chapter 5, verse 18. And the word of the Lord reads like this. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, and you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out of the Pharaoh. That's good, a little supportive crowd of uh, cheerleaders here. How'd you go? They must have asked, verse 21. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us to fester in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Chapter 6. But Yahweh said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. Not, Not only will he let them go, he will beg them to go. He will chase them out of his own land. That's how that's how powerful God's salvation will be. Verse 2: God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by the name the Lord I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of people of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will give you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh, the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit 
and harsh slavery. May God bless the reading of his own inerrant authoritative word in our midst this morning. Well, we see first here in this, in this scenery, we first see the, 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 the response or the actions of the foreman's here. We didn't spend a, a lot of time looking at this last week, but, but what we see is that, that there's been some time. We don't know exactly how long, but I would guess at least a week or so since Moses has asked for Israel's release, uh, Pharaoh has made the work harder, and then the foreman's go and ask because there had to be enough time for the news to spread to the, to the multi-million people that were the slave force and then, and then enough days go by where the quota is not being met and they're still being beaten and then the foremen eventually get the courage to go and talk to Pharaoh and then the next day they, they go and do so and then they're sent back. So, so enough time has elapsed here that they can say, what's going on? This, this, is, this is not what we expected to happen. And so they go to the person that they think is going to be able to help them. But on their way out, you saw they're blaming Moses and Pharaoh. It's odd that in their going to Pharaoh, they didn't actually go through Moses and Aaron. And from what they say on their way out from talking to Pharaoh, it's very evident that at this juncture, the Israelites, uh, especially represented by the foreman here, maybe, maybe the elders and the leaders of the families, they have lost all of their faith in Moses and Aaron. They said that it's, it's your fault that Pharaoh's trying to kill us. You've done something. Now, now, they don't say that God's abandoned us. Maybe they still believe that Yahweh is here to rescue, but Moses and Aaron are misrepresenting him. They're, they're not good prophets. We need to re- reject them. Or maybe they were thinking that Moses and Aaron had, in fact, committed some kind of sin so that now because of their representation of the people of Israel, God was cursing them. We're not, we're not entirely sure why, but they are blaming Moses and Aaron. It's just that... The easiest thing to do. Obviously, things go wrong, and you blame your leaders wholesale. But here they were thinking, thinking that salvation was likely to come from Pharaoh. Talk about Stockholm Syndrome. Here they are being whipped and murdered, and for generations, their young boys have been killed in the Nile by this man. And here they are thinking that this guy is going to be him and his grandfathers. They're, they're ilk. They're going to be the kind of guys. Pharaoh seems like the kind of person to listen to the weeping of slaves. This is, this is so foolish. This was their error that they're going to the enslaver. And, and we've been saying week by week that, that part of the continual biblical imagery is that the, the scriptures pull on this story of Exodus as one of the chief symbols of the gospel. And one of the things that is said over and over again is that it is sin that we are in fact slaves to. So that as we look on these, these Israelite foremen and we sort of see their situation and it's, it's getting worse and we say, how silly do you have to be? How, how thick-headed do you have to be? How hard-hearted? How stiff-necked to go back to the thing that is enslaving you to try and get some kind of release? Now, now we could b- uh, uh, keep on laying on the burden on these guys about how silly they are, but of course... This is how we far too often solve our own issues as well. Sin causes an issue in us and we turn back to sin or a different kind of sin to try and resolve the sin. We try and medicate our guilt with alcohol. We try and ignore sin by just avoiding the church, just, just, just avoiding the means of grace. We try and fix a tainted conscience by just not praying. If I don't go to prayer, I won't feel so bad. There's your solution. Or we we try and hide our sins with further lies. When sin causes issues, we try and solve them with, with rage and impatience and with anger. 
when, when, when uh, if we're, we're unmarried and, 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 and our, uh, we're, we're, we're tempted in sin and we try and apologize by, by going into other forms of sin or, or we try and compromise in order to bring the relationship back to par when, when you've sinned against when you've been sinned against by somebody and the solution becomes uh, a, 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 a journey into gossiping and, and letting other people know what's happened. We're anxious and so we overspend to feel better. Or we're in loneliness, and so we medicate that loneliness by immoral, non-Christian company, even romantic relationships. But Jesus has told us in his life and in his ministry that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. He, he drives home this analogy that as we look at the Israelites in slavery, we're supposed to see ourselves there under sin before we come by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're supposed to look back onto sin as if it was a pharaoh, as if it was Egypt who sought to destroy our lives and therefore never think of sin as your friend. Never think of breaking God's law and his perfect fatherly loving will. Never think of that as a solution to sin or to guilt or to shame or things like this. Jesus said himself, if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. It is only the Son that has been ordained by the Father. It is only Jesus Christ. It is only the Lord who came and died for us. It is only Him who now sits on the throne with all authority. It is only Him that can break the shackles of sin. And therefore, we act in folly and, and, and Israel-level ignorance when we go back to our own patterns of sin and folly instead of running into the arms of our Father. When we have weakness, when we have guilt and shame, we need the discipline. We need the discipline to turn to the Lord who is compassionate and slow to anger and the only one with the power to help. But the lessons keep on coming from this story. Look at, look at uh, verse 22 now. Moses, after hearing this tirade from the leaders, he turned to the Lord. Wherever you see, just for those who are new this week, the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's an that's a English version of the name Yahweh. So sometimes I'll read that as Lord. Sometimes I'll read it as the name Yahweh or Yahweh the Lord, but uh, uh, that's, uh, that's the reality of the language. So Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, not calling him by his name, but O Master, why have, you not, why have you done evil to this people? Just, just always a risky question to pose to the judge of all heaven and earth who never does evil himself. Here is Moses. Why have you done this evil? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. You have not even begun to make good on the promises you sent me back here with. He is, without saying it, he is saying that God himself is unfaithful, a covenant breaker, and a liar. Now, my first question, as I'm reading this, I think, why did Moses include this? Because he's the author. Do you know how easy it would have been to just, you know, forget that little private prayer that he had with the Lord God? No one else was there with him. Why didn't he just sort of conveniently forget that, say he repented of it, and not included it in the story? Because this makes him look terrible. 
But of course, he's writing this, and, and who is the first ever audience to the book of Exodus? Who's the first audience who gets this book hot off the press and has it read to them? It's, it's the generation who is in the wilderness and, 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 and those, those who are going to be entering into the, into the promised land. It's those people who themselves are beset with weakness and temptation and frustration. And so in reading this story, here's, a, here's an extremely sympathetic moment that they are able to look to their leader and say, he knows what it feels to be us. He's failed. He's not always been the, the one with perfect faith every day, staying strong, praying as he should. He also, just like any one of us, has also struggled with the faithlessness and the frustration that follows. He himself is impatient just like us. Questioning God's will here is not commendable, but it is understandable. I'm never going to say it's a good thing to do. Go, go and do it. Have a, you know, let God hear you. All your frustrations about what you think he should be doing. Not commendable. Never going to commend that. And yet, if here's Moses doing it, we understand that it's understandable. That we're all so fallen that we might, in our sin, go to the Lord and respond to him in ways that we shouldn't. But questioning God's will is understandable and it is common in these times. Maybe, maybe you've done the right thing like Moses thought he had. Moses has done the right thing, and it's gone from horrible to more horrible, from bad to worse, from slaved to murdered, right? This is what was happening to the people. And, and so it's, it's like, I mean, so it's maybe, maybe, you're a, maybe you're a single person, and you said no to a relationship that was going to lead to sin because you want to honor the Lord and wait for the right person, and then it was years before anybody else showed up. I did the right thing. Where's the blessing? Maybe you, you, you did the right thing in the workplace. You, you took a step out in integrity and you, you reported something that was amiss or you, you, you spoke to somebody who was doing the wrong thing and then you got censured, you got punished, you got penalized and promotion removed. Maybe, maybe that was your experience. Or maybe, maybe it's more like we could go to the story of Robert Germain Thomas, who back in the 1860s, he, he boarded a ship and inflamed with zeal for the mission of God and to reach the Chinese people and, and to hopefully try and get into the Korean nation with the gospel and so he left with his wife and on the ship nothing to do they get pregnant but by the time they get to the to the ocean she's sick and within a sorry to the land she's sick and within a, a couple of weeks she dies with the baby fully formed in her belly and here's Robert Jermaine Thomas a dead wife a dead child and a mission field and he gives up and he spends months. It may have even been, been up to or over a year that he just goes and works for the postal office. He gives up because he thought he had done everything right. And in those times when we think we do the right thing and horrible situations occur, we, we get into the rut of questioning. Questioning God, questioning what we did, and it breeds hopelessness. But this hopelessness, that painful periods and seasons of waiting on God cause... When the painful seasons of waiting on God cause hopelessness, it is just that particular hopelessness that God is breeding in us because it is proof that our hope was based on something other than God. Because when you're waiting on God and when you're in those seasons of struggle, health, financial, family, I don't know what it is, but, but in those seasons of struggling and, and, and we, we feel as if we are, we, are, we are inching closer to death, like our soul is just in the dust, like the psalmist says. When we are that desperate, God is no further away. Of what Spurgeon said, he says, whatever we have to endure, we endure it with God. 
So in those enduring, those suffering, those struggling times, God is not far away. And so if in those periods we experience hopelessness, sheer and pure anxiety, or we have no, 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 no ability, no, no steadfastness to throw our weight onto something and feel secure in the promises of God, then obviously we are not secured and based and standing on the promises of God. And so this is what God was doing, doing to Moses. This is, in fact, the first time that, this, that, that Moses has seen an issue and he didn't go out and try and solve it himself, right? He, he saw the Egyptian abusing the Jew. He killed the Egyptian. That got him ejected from, it, from, from, from Egypt. He, he saw the Jews who were fighting. And he interjected there and then he was blamed for doing wrong. And he at every point that we see Moses see an issue, he's always interjecting in and of himself. This is the first time that finally God is getting through his thick steel cranium to say in these issues... In these seasons, in these painful periods, I am the one you need. And so, if we can commend Moses for anything here, we can commend him for the fact that he turned to the Lord. His words were a bit, you know, off kilter. His, his attitude probably needed a good fixing, but at least he turned to the Lord. That is the encouragement and the example that we ought to follow in. This is, the, this is the, the reality of our despair. God is helping us to despair so that we might despair of ourselves so that we can rely entirely on God. And God here, of course, we can also see if in these periods of waiting where, where we're able in discipline to remind ourselves God is still here. Whatever I endure, I endure with him. He's working in me a despair, so I rely on him. Let's also just remind ourselves that the worse and worse our situations get, the worse and worse the, the enemy of God raises its head up against God himself, the, the worse and worse the situation got between Pharaoh and, and, and the Egyptians and the, and the Israelites, the greater the glory that God was able to get out of the situation. How do we know that, that if, if we were to ask God to solve a situation immediately and he were to do so, we would then witness later a, a, a diminished degree of God's power on display? How often it is God's purpose and his, his inclination and his will to allow our suffering to worsen so that his deliverance comes with all the greater grace, power, and gives him so much more glory. But look at God's answer. Look at what he says here at the beginning of chapter 6. <clears throat> what we see, and, and look down at verse 2, what we see God start saying back to Moses is in fact not, not an answering of his accusations. He doesn't sit down and say, Moses, I understand your issues. I've, I've read your letter here. Let me start with dot point one and, and just defend myself here. I actually am going about what I... No, he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't start defending himself. God never defends himself. He doesn't start trying to justify himself or answer Moses' accusations. It is, in fact, a lot more relational and ultimate than that. Instead of telling Moses, giving him specific questions, uh, specific answers to all of his specific questions, rather, he simply tells him his name. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am who I am. The very thing he spoke to him, Maybe weeks ago, back in the burning bush, so he reiterates right now, I am me. You have nothing to worry about. 
You understand that in our moments of, of trial, and, and maybe as Christian leaders, like you need to understand that Moses, the, the, the pressure on Moses here is immense. He's a leader who's gone forward, and because of his actions, people are dying. Like you can't do Christian leadership in any way that is worthwhile without some people bleeding and sweating and suffering because they're following you. So, so here he's got the burden of, 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 of all the mission, plus he's the leader in this situation. He's brought it to the Lord, and, and whatever your situation is, maybe it is, it, it is death, maybe it is health, maybe it is finance, maybe you are still in your scene and you despair for the sake of your soul, whatever suffering we're going through, the ultimate thing we always need to hear and rehear, like Moses had to rehear it, is God lean down to us through his word and simply say, I am who I am. I am the beginning and the end. I am the source and the ground of all being. Nothing exists without me. Nothing happens without my say-so. Nothing occurs unless it is getting me greater glory. It is not shoving me off the throne. I am still who I am. I will be who I am. Nothing will change that. If we hear that and we think, okay, cool theology, but give me some practicals, then we didn't hear what God said. That is the answer to every question. That is the answer to every heartache. God is God. Praise him, rest in him, trust him. He says to him first up, I am the Lord Yahweh. But, and then he actually goes even deeper. Look at verse three. He says this interesting thing that I appeared to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty, but I did not appear to them. I did not make myself known to them by the name Yahweh. So what God is, is reminding him here is, I'm the same God who rescued and saved and promised to those patriarchs, but you, Moses, you're standing in this seat of privilege and, and, and this, this, this way that you've received extra grace. You know me, in a sense, even deeper than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's reminding to him the grace, the, the, the name of God symbolizes the relationship that he's entering into that is so intimate, so personal, so divine. No, I've not been known as this name before, but you know my name because I have condescended to you. You can almost hear him whisper in brackets, and you still don't trust me. But he goes on. She says, first of all, his name. And then secondly, he reminds him of the past covenant relationship. So look at verse four and five. He says, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. And moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves and I have remembered my covenant. This is a, a callback for the, for the people who haven't been here week by week. This is a callback to the fact that when Abraham and Isaac and Jacob lived more than 450 years ago, God had met with them and appeared himself to each of them and made them promises that, that he had saved them, Romans tells us, by faith. He forgave their sins, but then he also promised them certain things about the nation that would come from them. They'll be a great nation. They'll get their own land. I'll save them from Egypt and the Messiah, the Savior of the world will come from your nation. These were, these were glorious promises given to them, but here's God saying to Moses basically this, I've been at this salvation thing since way before you were born. Right? Remember, the thing you're complaining to me about, not fulfilling my promises, 
I've been at this promise uh, uh, deal. I've been doing this whole covenant of salvation agenda for hundreds of years before you were ever thought of, Moses. You think one more week of salvation, of, of, of slavery, is throwing my timeline off? <laughs> I am the Lord. You're Moses. You're this tiny little little time-bound, life is like a, like a missed little guy. I understand it. Your perspective is pretty bad from all the way down there. But I am Yahweh, and I have been making covenant promises, and I will not fail at them. But then we can even go a little bit further and look at what exactly he reminds Moses. Now, of course, at the background of, of all of our minds at this moment is, when's he just going to burn this guy to a crisp? Did he hear what he just said to him? And, and all we're getting is this, is this steadfast love and, and this patience and this mercy and reminder of his grace. Yes, absolutely yes. Welcome, welcome to Yahweh. This is who he is, slow to anger, abounding in compassion and steadfast love. He is, he is quick to show grace, especially to those whose sins are accounted to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know why he didn't explode in wrath here, because he would explode against his own son in a 1.5 thousand years time and God was patient with Moses. And he said to him, the very specific promises that are a part of the covenant, he, he reminds him of them today and they are basically three. I will deliver you and take you out of Egypt and take you to the land. Uh, sorry, I will, I will deliver you from slavery and take you out of Egypt. That's one. I will redeem you. In other words, I will do what is required to take you back. And thirdly, I will take you uh, to be my possession. And fourthly, I will give you a home in a land. So look at verse 6, where the first promise comes with two I will statements. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. That's the, that's the first promise. You will get out of slavery. I will do what I promised Moses and your forefathers. Next he says, I, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. This is, this is the language of, of redemption. If we remember the Old, Old Testament system, it's if you're... Let's go with brother, right? You're an older brother. Your younger brother has to, has to, he gets in so much debt that he sells himself into some kind of indentured slavery. It's then your right and privilege as a brother to go to his situation, pay what he owes so that you can redeem him back to yourself. This is what God is saying he's going to do for his son. Israel, the nation, he's going to come onto the scene of Egypt and in order to deliver them, in order to rescue them, there has to be a, a payment of some kind, an act of some kind. And what is that act? Well, the breaking of the arm of Pharaoh, the destruction of the gods that hold fast through the religious system, the Israelites in place. God's going to come in and he's going to wipe out everything that stands in his way as an act of redeeming them to himself. And then he says, in verse 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Who you worship makes no difference to who's on the throne. That you believe in a God does not mean that God exists or is the God. We say often here at Hope that the gospel is not that you're invited to make Jesus Lord, 
The gospel is that Jesus is Lord who died for your sins. You're invited to recognize that now before you're forced to recognize it at your judgment. What God is saying here to them is not, I will finally become God. I will finally become Lord, but rather, I am Lord, and I'm going to become your God, your functional God. I'm going to be the God that this nation worships. I'm going to be the God that is actually known, uh, served, and worshipped in your actual presence. So he's saying this, this language of adoption, of, 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 of possession, that he's going to take them and not just release them into the wilderness like, a, like, a, like scattered puppies and say, you know, go enjoy, you're out of slavery, but rather redeemed from Israel by his work to then come and be his own, those who worship him, those who know him, and then can say generation by generation, Yahweh is our God. That was his third promise. And fourthly, his promise was to take them into the land of Canaan, which was promised. And that's in verse 8. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. These are the, these are the promises that God reiterates. So I know we might hear this, and maybe even now you're going, where? We're, we're a few minutes into this, and I haven't actually heard a whole bunch of uh, additional promises, or the, the storyline doesn't actually seem to have gone any further. It's just recapping. We just heard the same promises, the same God say the same things, and, 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 and yeah, yeah, that's what Moses needed. That's what the Israelites needed. That's what you and I need. Like, we, we need every week to come back to the basics of who God is, the promises he makes, and we need to hear it not just every week on Sunday, but every day, every hour you need to re-remind yourself of the gospel. So, so don't look back at these Israelites or, or this story and go, oh, gee, they're a bit thick-headed, just, just saying the same stuff over again. Yet point at ourselves and say, thank God that in his grace, he re-reveals, he re-emphasizes, he re-reminds us of the goodness of his own grace. Look at Look at verses 6 through 8, and just notice all of the times in here that as God speaks to Moses, he never at any point says, if you, or you will. He simply says, I will. It is the nature of our covenant making and keeping God that he is the one who takes onto himself the initiation and the initiative to make the promises that we need fulfilled. He says over and over again, I will do this. I will do it for you. I will do it for you. I will do this. I will do. I will do. And you will simply be the receivers of this glorious salvation. This is, this is the amazing thing. And yet he's doing it because of a promise that he made long ago to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's a promise, a covenant of long ago that needs to be fulfilled. Therefore, God does everything. But the good news of the gospel is that God, long before he spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is an amazing covenant, the old covenant with God and Israel. But there is a more glorious covenant. And it is the covenant the Father and the Son and the Spirit made together before time ever started that they would, in time, redeem a lost race of sinners through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. There is a, there is a covenant that goes back beyond Abraham it's God's covenant with his, between the Father and the Son. And because of that, God also looks to us and lists out many, many, many I will statements in the, in the Scriptures. The gospel is full of I will statements from God to us. For example, I will forgive your sins. 
I will blot out your transgressions. I will give you a new heart. I will put within you my Holy Spirit. I will give you an eternal land. I will be your God and you will be my people. But in fact, the gospel is even better than that. Because I don't just have the good news to share with you that though you're sinners, God will forgive and God will do something one day, but rather it is the, it is the honor of a, of a gospel preacher to, to look at a, a sea of sinners and say to every single human that has ever lived, we can say and publish the good news. Not only will he, but he has. The gospel is not simply something about something in the future. It is good news about something that is already done. He has sent his son. He has come into flesh. He has lived as the perfect man and fulfilled the law. He has, as the clean slate, perfect man, gone before God. He has been imputed and given to carry all of our sins. He has died under God's wrath, drinking the cup of punishment that you might be forgiven. He has been declared as risen from the dead because he had finished his payment. He has has been raised up to the seat and the throne that rules over the universe and he has given his spirit and he has proclaimed his gospel so that anybody that now believes, friends, anybody in the room today and beyond that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. It all relies on God. He will, he will, he will. But it has all been done. That great song that we sing, cease your doing, all was done ever long ago. Why are you working? Why are you still striving? Or to the prodigals, to the runaways, to those who once knew about this salvation and threw yourself back into the sea of sin like Jonah. He even from there can redeem you. Do not be like the Israelites. The end of today's passage, when Moses goes back and he speaks these words to them, but because of the harshness of their slavery, their hearts were broken and they did not believe. Understandable, but they had no right to question the promises of the covenant keeping God. If today in the preaching of the gospel you say, I've heard this before, it's simply unbelievable. I know my own sin. I know how long I have spurned the call of the gospel. I know how much I have done. You don't know what I've done. You don't understand how sinful and guilty and vile I am. I'll willingly put up my hands and say, I just don't. I don't know you, but God does. I understand that sin, and like, like Pharaoh, delights in hardening your heart. And at the same time, breaking your heart so that you dare not believe the good news when it comes, but dare to believe. Do not dare to reject the gospel. Believe today. Simply rest. I'm not calling for you to do anything. All was done by Jesus. Simply lean your soul upon him. He can take your weight, the weight of your soul, the weight of your sin. He can save and he will. He promises that. Jesus died and rose for you. Believe today and be forgiven. Let's pray. Father God, it is good news. It is good news that in our suffering, in our darkness, in our seasons of trial, for us to hear the words, you are who you are. You are Yahweh. We thank you for that, 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 that rock of ages for us that is the foundation upon which we can build our whole life, that you are God, you are Lord, you are sovereign, you will get your glory, you are, you are immutable and unchangeable and our sufferings do not, do not incline you or change your will or damage your plans. And yet, Lord God, 
Even as we read this passage, we understand that in our suffering and in our sin, you have moved. You have decided, you have chosen to come down and condescend and make yourself known to us. And, and we can say, uh, almost like Moses, he, he had a unique way of knowing you that the previous generations didn't. But we as Christians, we know you in and through the person and the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And as Jesus of Nazareth lived and revealed you to us, so he showed that you were willing to forgive any sinner and every sinner who simply puts down their sin, who simply puts down their trying to be righteous and falls headlong into the arms of Jesus. Father God, I pray that today you would give unbelievers faith, that they would be able to rejoice in new life as their heart is sprung to new spiritual life as they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Please, Lord, assure them that there is nothing they need to do or to commit to or, to or to impress you with for you to forgive, but simply resting on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please exalt him and glorify him in our hearts and in our midst this morning. Lord God, we pray all of this in his name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.